Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shabbat Shalom. My name is Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and thank you for joining us here for our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai or in any way that you might be watching us, either on Facebook Live or any one of our other apps, either on Apple TV, Roku, or Amazon Fire. Today it is December 6th, and uh, we hope that you had a wonderful week. And as we uh, come here to our Arab Shabbat, we are always looking forward to the Sabbath, where we join together with this broadcast to worship the Lord, uh, set apart the Sabbath with the Kiddush, and hear from the Word of the Lord, the Torah portion. As we close out uh, 2019, uh, there's a couple of things that we have going on with the ministry. We always want to encourage brethren, if you're blessed by this broadcast and if the Lord would stir in your heart to make a donation to this ministry, you can do so at llgive.com, and there are several different ways that you can donate there. And also, as we close out the year, we have one more event for 2019, and that is our Hanukkah conference in Norman, Oklahoma. It is December 27th and 28th, a Friday and a Saturday, and we hope that you and your family would join us uh, for that wonderful time. You can go to HanukkahEvent.com and register your family there. Children and teens are free, so we look forward to uh, all the families that will be coming and joining us for that. That event. Right now, let us uh, close out the week and let us look forward to the Sabbath, now separating it and setting it apart with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. to be a light unto the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Eloheinu melech haolam, borei Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min ha'aret 
We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. (laughs) Husbands, let's bless our wives. (coughs) Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful wives that you've given to us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for beautiful wives of Proverbs. Thank you, Lord, for my wife and the blessing that she is to our home and to our family. Bless her, encourage her, and strengthen her as she teaches and educates the children, as she wakes up in the morning to take care of them and see about the ways of the household. Father, I thank you for the wonderful blessing she is to me and to our home. I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her and pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. So we love you and bless you and thank you for all of these things, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Amen. Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Arunai Hamvorach, Baruch Arunai Hamvorach Leolaham Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michumocha. Micha Mocha Baelim Adonai Micha Mocha Nedahar Bachodesh Nohora Techilot Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen.
And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Israel et hashabat, la'asot et hashabat, ladrotam barit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Israel ot hit le'olam, kesheshet yamim asadonai et hashamayim v'et ha'aret v'yom hashavi shavat v'inafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed. Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha, Bechol Levavcha, Uvkol Nashicha, Uvkol Meodecha. Veheyu hadevarim haale asher nechime zavcha hayom alevavecha. Vashinantam lavenecha, vadepardabam beshiftecha, beyetecha, uvlechtecha, vederech ushakbika, uvkumika. Ukeshatam la ota yadecha, veheyu la totavolt binenecha, uketavtama mozuzo betecha, uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. I love you, Yahweh. 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 I love you, Yahweh.
Shalom. Please join us for the reading of Parashah Vayetzi. Then Yaakov departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of Elohim were ascending and descending on it. And behold, Adonai stood above it and said, I am Adonai, the Elohim of your father Avraham, and the Elohim of Yitzhak. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Yaakov awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Adonai is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! There is none other than the house of Elohim, and this is the gate of heaven. So Yaakov rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Yaakov made a vow, saying, if Elohim will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then Adonai will be my Elohim. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be Elohim's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Chapter 29. Then Yaakov went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. He looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it, for from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Yaakov said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Lavan, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered. And they roll the stone from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess. When Yaakov saw Rachel, the daughter of Lavan, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Lavan, his mother's brother, 
Yaakov went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Lavan, his mother's brother. Then Yaakov kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. Yaakov told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rivka's son. And she ran and told her father. So when Lavan heard the news of Yaakov, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Then he related to Lavan all these things. Lavan said to him, Surely you are bone of my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Lavan said to Yaakov, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Lavan had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Yaakov loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Lavan said, It is better that I give her to you than give her to another man. Stay with me. So Yaakov served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Then Yaakov said to Lavan, Give me my wife, for my time is completed, that I may go into her. Lavan gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him, and Yaakov went into her. Lavan also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Lavan, What is this that you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? But Lavan said, It is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also, for the service which you will serve with me for another seven years. Yaakov did so and completed her week, and he gave, them, he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Lavan also gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maid. So Yaakov went in to Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Lavan for another seven years. Now Adonai saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son, and named him Reuven. For she said, Because Adonai has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because Adonai has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Shimon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore he was named Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise Adonai. Therefore she named him Yehuda. Then she stopped bearing. Chapter 30 Now when Rachel saw that she bore Yaakov no children, she became jealous of her sister, and she said to Yaakov, Give me children or else I die. Then Yaakov's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of Elohim, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? She said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees, that through her I too may have children. So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife, and Yaakov went into her. Bilhah conceived and bore Yaakov a son. Then Rachel said, Elohim has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore she named him Dan. Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Yaakov a second son. So Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Yaakov as a wife. 
Leah's maid Zilpah bore Yaakov a son. Then Leah said, How fortunate! So she named him Gad. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Yaakov a second son. Then Leah said, Happy am I, for women shall call me happy. So she named him Asher. Now in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuven went in and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, Therefore he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. When Yaakov came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. Elohim gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Yaakov a fifth son. Then Leah said, Elohim has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Yisachar. Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Yaakov. Then Leah said, Elohim has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I've borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then Elohim remembered Rachel, and Elohim gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, Elohim has taken away my reproach. She named him Yosef, saying, May Adonai give me another son. Now it came about when Rachel had born Yosef that Yaakov said to Levan, Send me away, that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I served you, and let me depart. For you yourself know my service which I have rendered you. But Levan said to him, If now it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that Adonai has blessed me on your account. He continued, Name me your wages and I will give it. But he said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your cattle have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased to a multitude. And Adonai has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? So he said, What shall I give you? And Yaakov said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. Let me pass through your entire flock today, removing from there every speckled and spotted sheep, and every black one among the lambs, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and such shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come concerning my wages. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, will be considered stolen. Levan said, Good, let it be according to your word. So he removed on that day the striped and spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats and everyone with white in it, and all the black ones among the sheep, and gave them to the care of his sons. And he put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Yaakov, and Yaakov fed the rest of Levan's flocks. Then Yaakov took fresh rods of poplar and almond and plane trees, and peeled white strips in them, exposing the white which was in the rods. He set the rods which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the gutters, even in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, and they mated when they came to drink. So the flocks mated by the rods, and the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. Yaakov separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Lavan, and he put his own herds apart and did not put them with Lavan's flock. Moreover, whenever the stronger of the flocks were mating, Yaakov would place the rods in the side of the flocks in the gutters so that they might mate by the rods. But when the flock was feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Lavan's and the stronger were Yaakov's. 
So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Chapter 31. Now Yaakov heard the words of Lavan's sons, saying, Yaakov has taken away all that was our father's, and from what belonged to our father he has made all his wealth. Yaakov saw the attitude of Lavan, and behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly. Then Adonai said to Yaakov, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Yaakov sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field and said to them, I see your father's attitude, that it is not friendly toward me as formerly, but the Elohim of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, Elohim did not allow him to hurt me. If he spoke thus... The speckled shall be your wages. Then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, The striped shall be your wages. Then all the flock brought forth striped. Thus Elohim has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. And it came about at the time when he, the flock were mating that I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream. And behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled, and mottled. Then the angel of Elohim said to me in a dream, Yaakov. And I said to him, Here I am. He said, Lift up now your eyes, and see all that the male goats which are mating and are striped, speckled, and mottled, for I have seen all that Lavan has been doing to you. I am the El of Betel, where you were anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. Rachel and Leah said to him, Do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned by him as a foreigners? For he has sold us and also has entirely consumed our purchase price. Surely all the wealth which Elohim has, get, has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, do whatever Elohim has said to you. Then Yaakov arose and put his children and his wives upon camels, and he drove away all his livestock and all his property which he had gathered, his acquired livestock which he had gathered in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan, to his father Yitzhak. When Lavan had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. And Yaakov deceived Lavan the Aramean by not telling him that he was fleeing. So he fled with all that he had, and he arose and crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill country of the Gilead. When it was told Lavan on the third day that Yaakov had fled, then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. Elohim came to Lavan, the Aramean, in a dream of the night and said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Yaakov, either good or bad. Lavan caught up with Yaakov. Now Yaakov had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Lavan with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. Then Lavan said to Yaakov, What have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me so that I might send you away with joy and with songs and with timbrel and with lyre? And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the Elohim of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to speak either good or bad to Yaakov. Now you have indeed gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Then Yaakov replied to Lavan, Because I was afraid, for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. 
The one with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Yaakov did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Lavan went into Yaakov's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maids, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle, and she sat on them. And Lavan felt through all the tent, but did not find them. She said to her father, Let my lord not be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. So he searched out, but did not find the household idols. Then Yaakov became angry and contended with Lavan. And Yaakov said to Lavan, What is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I've been in your house. I've served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you change my wages ten times. If the Elohim of my father, the Elohim of Abraham, and the fear of Yitzhak had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. Elohim has seen my affliction in the toil of my hands, so he rendered judgment last night. Then Levan replied to Yaakov, The daughters are my daughters, and the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have borne? So now come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Then Yaakov took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Yaakov said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap and they ate there by the heap. Now Lavan called it Yagar Sahaduta, but Yaakov called it Galid. Lavan said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, it was named Galid and Mizpah, for he said, May Adonai watch between you and me when we are absent from the other. If you mistreat my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no man is with us, see, Elohim is witness between you and me. Lavan said to Yaakov, Behold this heap and behold the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm and you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The Elohim of Abraham and the Elohim of Nahor, the Elohim of their father, judge between us. Yaakov swore by the fear of his father Yitzhak. Then Yaakov offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his kinsmen to the meal. And they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain. Early in the morning, Lavan rose and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. Then Lavan departed and returned to his place. Chapter 32 now as Yaakov went on his way, the angels of Elohim met him. Yaakov said when he saw them, This is Elohim's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Thank you for joining us for the reading of Parashah Vayetzi. Now in Parashah Vayetzi, we see that Yaakov is fleeing from his brother and he arrives at a certain place and pitches a camp. While he's there, he has this dream. And in this dream, there's a ladder. Genesis chapter 28 verse 12 says, He had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to the heavens. And behold, the angels of Elohim were ascending and descending on it. Now, 
This latter we're going to see in another place in Scripture. In fact, there's one named Netanel, Nathaniel, which, by the way, means gift of Elohim. He's the famous one who uttered the phrase, can any good come out of Netzeret? When he encounters Yeshua in John chapter 1, verses 47 through 51, we see this. Yeshua saw Netanel coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israel indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Netanel said to him, How do you know me? Yeshua answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Netanel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of Elohim. You are the king of Israel. Yeshua answered and said to him, Because I said to you that you were under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will see the heavens opened and the angels of Elohim ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So we see that Yeshua is connecting the latter to himself. Now going back to Yaakov, Yaakov was all alone. He was in a strange place, surrounded by strangers. He was challenged by his circumstances. The latter, Yeshua, the one who connects us to the heavens, is always with you. And he has sent us a helper. It says in John chapter 14, 26 and 27, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. There are reasons that we experience hardship, pain, and difficult circumstances. Yaakov found himself in these situations, and yet the latter came to him and gave him comfort. These tests, this hardship, the pain, the difficult circumstances that we go through in our lives, they're there for a reason. They're there to shape our character. They're there to test us, to see how we respond. Yaakov's response was to proclaim, if you will be my Elohim and you will be with me, then I will serve you. You will be my Adonai and my Elohim. These experiences that we go through, they're there to give us wisdom. They're also there for us to experience that so that we might help someone else through the same circumstance when they arrive in that place and we've already gone through it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 say, Blessed be the Elohim and Father of our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach, the Father of mercies and Elohim of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by Elohim. Let's remember the words of Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, that says, When problems, challenges, and discouragement come our way, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for Adonai, your Elohim, is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. As we saw in this parasha, the latter, Adonai, Yeshua, went with Yaakov. He was with them the entire time. He was never abandoned. He was not restricted by the bounds of Israel's borders or the land of his grandfather, Avraham, or the fa- his father, Yitzhak. But rather, Adonai knows no boundaries. And he went with Yaakov. And he was with him through all the trials. As Yaakov explained to Lavan, Elohim was with him and helped him through all the difficulties and all the circumstances he faced. There's a friend that we have who sticks closer than any brother. 
And he's with us. And he goes with us wherever we go. No matter where we may find ourselves, the ladder upon whom the angels of Elohim ascend and descend, upon whom we have a connection to heaven, the ladder is with you wherever you go. Praise be to his name. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. If you would, turn your Bibles to the prophet Hosea, uh, to Hosea chapter 12. We're going to be looking right there at the end of the chapter. Our Hof Torah portion this Sabbath is from, from Hosea chapter 12. In your Bibles, as marked as verse 12 uh, of chapter 12, Actually, if you have a Hebrew Bible, it'll be verse 13. Uh, there's a slight variation between a Hebrew Bible and English Bibles on how they lay out the book of Hosea. So if you have a normal, regular English Bible, you're looking at verse 12. If you have a Hebrew Bible, we're looking at verse 13 in that chapter. Uh, the Haftoah portion uh, for this week ties very directly into Vayetzi, which is about the story of Jacob departing, going to Paramaram, and him essentially finding uh, his wives, who he marries and works for. And as a result, let me read the initial verses of this portion from Hosea, and you'll see exactly why this portion is connected with that Torah portion. Reading now from verse uh, 12 of chapter 12. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. And obviously that ties right back into the Torah portion, just as Ephraim was sharing with you earlier, uh, about Jacob and how he met Rachel, how he ends up getting married to Leah, and then he has to work additional years for um, Rachel. And by the way, that is the language of this verse. Let me walk you through. You know the basic story. He worked for seven years thinking it was for Rachel, when in truth of fact he gets married to Leah, and then he gets Rachel, and then he has to work another seven years for her. So that's the way the verse is laid out. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram. That's where Laban, his uncle, was at. Israel worked for a wife. He worked seven years thinking it was Rachel, but it turns out it was Leah, and for a wife, now it really is Rachel, he kept sheep. So this is a classic evidence, and I want to point this out to everybody. The Torah and and the way Hebrew scriptures are written, if you see the same word phrase repeated, it's not the same thing that it was the first time. And this is a classic example of that interpretational technique and why it's accurate. Um, Israel worked for a wife. He worked seven years. Thinking he was going to get Rachel, he ended up with Leah. And then for a wife, for Rachel, he kept sheep for another seven years. So we know, even though the word wife is repeated twice, we're not talking about the same wife. We're talking about two women. We're talking about two wives here. Although it doesn't say plural, it always says singular. But because it's a separate statement, a separate phrase, one of the things that we learn in studying the Hebrew Scriptures, any time you see the immediate repetition of the phrase or term, it's usually not about the first one. It's there's something new being expressed. The, one of the close classic examples of this interpretation is, of course, 
in Genesis 22 in the binding where it says uh, that Abraham took Isaac and so the two of them walked together. Then suddenly Isaac says, Father, you know, we, where's the lamb? You know, we have the fire, we have the, we have the wood, we have the, all the stuff. Where's the lamb? And then Abraham says, the Lord will provide the lamb for himself. And then it says again, so the two of them walked on together. Well, so the two of them walked on together the second time doesn't mean the same thing the first one was said. It means that now Isaac is walking on with the understanding of what's getting ready to happen. That Isaac began to understand his father was taking him up there. And you have the picture of Isaac trusting and being obedient to his father, Abraham, which is, by the way, the same picture that we have of the Messiah going to the Garden of Gethsemane and submitting to his father, knowing what was going to happen to him. And just like the story of Abraham and Isaac, it brings out a very powerful element of the understanding between Abraham and Isaac as to what was going on, even though it's the same phrase. So down here in Hosea, we have the same manner of Hebrew presentation in the text. We're really talking about two wives, but the word wife singular is still being used, even though it's about two different ones. So that is what begins this portion, and the reason why the sages have connected this to uh, Vayetzi and the story of Jacob leaving and going and acquiring the, the, his wives and and uh, and his sons and his children, his family from it. So so with that, that's the connection. But let's step back and let's look why why are we looking at Hosea here, and what what is the bigger message of Hosea? that is being expressed to us. Uh, last week, one of the things I shared with you very in, in passing was that Malachi the prophet was the last of the prophets, or at least that's the way the Hebrews referred to him, as the last of the prophets. That's the reason why that book is arranged as the last book of the Tanakh, of the Old Testament. This was a decision that was made by Yochanan ben Zakkai, first rabbi of Judaism at about 90 A.D., even after the resurrection this took place. This prophet, Hosea, is the first word prophet, and he will be sent specifically to Ephraim, to the northern kingdom, to the house of Ephraim. He's not a prophet just for all of Israel. He'll refer to Israel, but he's not talking about the Jewish part of Israel. He's talking about the house of Ephraim and speaking prophetically to them. Um, and um, and this is because the word prophets showed up after the kingdom was divided. We have a northern kingdom led by the tribe of Ephraim. We have a southern kingdom led by the house of David, uh, of Judah. And the lower group is called Jews. The upper group is called Israelites. And as you all know, if you go back and study your biblical history, Jeroboam, who was an Ephraimite king, he set himself up in opposition to the descendant of King Solomon, and that's the reason why we had the split um, in in the whole house of Israel. And that subdivision ultimately leads to the house of Israel going into captivity with the Assyrians. Hosea is the first prophet that's dispatched as a word prophet to address these issues, and he was dispatched to the house of Ephraim. So much of what he speaks of here is not talking to all of Israel as a whole. He is really 
pointedly talking to the descendants uh, of the house of Ephraim and the northern kingdom, the northern tribes. Now, just just to give you a little background so you can understand why Hosea is going to be so tierce here in some of this. When Jeroboam uh, became king of Ephraim and he separated from, from Judah, um, he resented the fact that all of the people uh, would, on the festivals of the Lord, they would travel, the pilgrimage festivals, they would travel to Jerusalem. And they would spend their money down in Jerusalem. You know, and, well, that's not part of his kingdom. You know, he wants them to stay and spend their money up there. And he's okay with them. What are, they can have a religious festival, but just don't be going down to Jerusalem because, you know, I'm in, I'm in opposition to Judah. So what he did was he built replica temples. And by the way, in these days, Ephraim was a pretty wealthy tribe. They were a very powerful and highly esteemed group. That was the reason why he could pull the stunt off to object and, and split um, uh, the, the nation, and other nations would recognize it, and even Judah was counseled, don't go have war with them because, of, I mean, they're very powerful and very strong. And so Ephraim was very powerful and very strong. And so guess what? You know, they made two temples. They did one at Bethel, and then they did one up in the north toward Dan. To this day, when you go to Israel, you can take a tour. You can go up into the land of Dan, and you can see the foundation stones of this temple that was built by Jeroboam. And there's a full altar complex and a full courtyard, uh, a replicated temple. This thing still exists to this day. The stones are still there of the temple that had been built there. The one at Bethel has come into ruin, but the one up there is still, uh, the ruins of it are still remain intact. And essentially, Ephraim rose up against the Lord and uh, what the Hosea the prophet is going to be saying in, in this message is because you have risen up against the Lord, you've actually brought ruin and destruction to yourselves. You, you think you're powerful. You think you're mighty. What you've done is you actually have ruined yourself. And it's just a matter of time as, as things go in. So Hosea is this prophet coming in and explaining to them how the decisions they've made and the things they've done is they have really messed up. And so look at the initial words here uh, in this chapter, and you'll get the, again, this is repeated, repeated by the prophet throughout most of the book. But here's the conclusion of the book. We're, we're looking at the concluding messages of him. He goes on to say, let me read again from verse 12. Now, Jacob fled to Aram, and Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. But by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was kept. Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger so that his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and bring back his reproach to him. And basically what Hosea is saying here is, Ephraim, look back at how your father and your ancestors began. Did I not send Jacob, your father, did he not go to a place? And it was a very difficult place for him. He's going to be there 20 years, by the way. And did I not dwell with him? Did I not stay with him so that when he was there, I gave him his wives, I gave him his children. I, when he went there, he was poor and had nothing. And while he is in this oppressive environment of 20 years of being oppressed, 
when when I get done with him, he's going to leave this place with his house, his family, and with a, a value and and riches sufficient to to sustain him. And if you remember, he had flocks and he had herds when he left. Uh, you know, from at the end of this twenty years, and he's reminding him, "Did I not do that for Jacob?" You know, Jacob went and, and he did these things, and and and, um, and did isn't that? Don't you remember that's what happened? He came back to the land, and and I had sustained him the whole time he was gone, and then he takes the issue of now. You remember how his descendants went down into Egypt, and they were down there for a long, long time, and how they were oppressed. Did I not send a prophet down there to them and gather them up and bring them back out? Did I, don't you remember what I did? When I brought them back out, they were, they were slaves when they left. When I brought them back out, by the time they got to the promised land, they're a nation. Don't, don't you remember what I did with them? And he's basically saying, here you are a powerful nation, and you decided to go contrary to the Lord, so you're going to go back to being captives again. I'm in the business of taking you when you're poor and you're captives and raising you up and establishing you, but you decide to leave me, so guess what you're going to do? You're going to take your powerful position and you're going to go back to being captives. By the way, the house of Ephraim did go into Assyrian captivity and been dispersed in the world ever since. Now, praise God. God's also given some promises through Hosea and other prophets that there's ultimately a day when they'll be brought back, you know, even from that captivity, they'll be brought back and established. And we know those things to be of the restoration of the whole house of Israel, the prophecies of the end of the ages, what the Jews call the final redemption. And this is something that we're looking for the Messiah to accomplish. Here we are in this generation. And most of the Messianic believers in the Messianic movement, I think this is a fair statement. I don't think I have to substantiate this at all for you. Most of you are not Jews like me. You're, you're not of the house of Judah. You are of the house of Ephraim. You are the scattered people that, that blew this, okay, and you got scattered. Now, and, and as Hosea says, Ephraim would be scattered so bad they would lose their identity. They wouldn't even know they were God's people. They wouldn't even know they're Israel anymore. Now, the Jews didn't lose that. That wasn't the manner of punishment for the Jews. They always knew they were part of Israel. They never lost that identity. But the house of Ephraim did. And you've heard other books and teachers, they talk about the ten lost tribes of Israel and so forth. Well, the reason why they're saying is because here's this group of people who lost their identity as being part of the house of Ephraim, part of the whole house of Israel. And But in these days, in this messianic moment, we see the prophecies of the rest, restoring of the two houses coming. We see the reunification taking place, the spiritual return, the physical return to the land, the house of Judah. And we see Ephraim reemerging from the nations, just as the prophet said, and we're all turning back to Moses and, and we're responding. And that was the exhortation of Hosea. The prophet was to try to get Ephraim to repent then rather than have to go through the captivity thing. Well, as as we all know, the end of the story, the children of Israel didn't listen to the prophet. They refused to accept his counsel. And so as a result, punishment came to Israel. They got scattered. The Assyrians came and took them captive. Um, And 
you know, and, and we know the rest of the story. Here we are. Here we are at the end. Now, uh, and then what begins to be explained here is the level of punishment, the level of harm that would come to Israel. Now, I'm not going to read this whole thing to you. You can kind of read it for yourself. Let me just tell you, it's not good. I mean, it's a pretty severe pronouncement of judgment. Um, but let me show you, there's one description in here that emphatically really addresses it. And as I mentioned to you before, Ephraim, when they were punished by the Lord, they lost their identity. Okay? Well, part of the description in here, the punishment to come to Ephraim, is very tears. I want to I show it to you what it says uh, here. It begins here, um, verse 4 of chapter 13. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except in except me, and no Savior besides me. I carried you in the wilderness, in the land of the drought, and they had their pasture, and they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud, therefore they forgot me. In other words, he's saying, Ephraim, look, you, look where you come from, but you've decided to forget me. I'm the Lord. I did all these things for your ancestors. And here you are as their descendants, and you're not doing it. So I will be like a lion to them, verse 7. Like a leopard, I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. And there I will also devour them like a lioness and a wild beast would tear them. Now, that verse is actually... Highly prophetic. That verse and the punishment can be also carried over to the book of Daniel. And Daniel uses certain symbols of judgments that would come upon Israel scattered in the nations, not the least of which is the judgment that was done by the Babylonians first. By the way, the lion was the symbol of Babylon. They used to have a griffin lion with a winged lion. We were judged first by Babylon. Then we were judged by the 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 um, um, the next one is the leopard, Greece. Greece then came and overran the whole thing, running off the Persians. Israel was subject to them, and then it talks about the bear. Okay, and and a lot of people like to, to tie this in, but actually in this particular case, the bears may, being made reference to the Assyrians. And what the Assyrians would do to Ephraim. And then finally it says, um, then devoured by the, the lioness, the wild beast. And that's a reference to the Romans. And so God is describing his judgment upon all of Israel. But in particular, the part about the bear is definitely about Ephraim. Here's why they say that. When the Assyrians came in, Unlike any of the other world powers that have come in and attacked Jerusalem and the people of Israel, when the Assyrians came in and took the people captive, one of the dimensions was that they lost their identity. And the picture is this. They lost their heart. They lost the heart of who they are. And the analogy that's used here by the prophet and by the way, if, if you know anything about wild animals, let me just explain the metaphor, the, the, the picture he's really trying to do. When you get attacked by a lion, okay, 
the big lion. If a, if a lion comes after you, I will tell you what they will do. They will come in with their claws. They will grab you and completely take you down. And then he will reach down on the back of your neck and he'll chew down on there and he'll just snap your neck just like that and kill you. That's what a lion will do to you, a male lion. Um, a leopard will run you down and get a throat grab on you and literally suffocate you to death. Will literally bite into this part of your throat, bite down, and that's how they kill their prey. And that's how, if they were attacking you, that's how they would kill you. They would bite you in the neck and choke off your windpipe and you would be asphyxiated. It wouldn't be, you know. The lioness does the same thing. The lion comes in and, and chokes you uh, uh, down there. But the difference between a lioness is because they hunt in packs. While one is choking you and holding you in control, the other ones start to gut you. They start to tear tear your innards out and so forth. And so you die a very gruesome death with a pack of lions. But what about a bear? How does a bear, when he goes up and he's going to kill somebody, well, it's a mauling and essentially what a bear does, he doesn't grab your neck. What he does is he goes for the center part of your body. And he goes up with the claws and he hits you in the center part of you. He takes the claws and he literally rips you open in the center to the point where he gets to your heart. And he rips in with his claws and attacks your heart. And he literally pulls your heart out of you. The, the mauling of a bear is completely different. From the attack of a lion, uh, a lioness, or a leopard. They have have a completely different way. And so he's drawing the analogy. Here's what's going to happen to you, Ephraim. You're going to be ravaged by a bear. And when the bear hits you, he's going to go right for the center of you, right where your center vital organs are. And he's going to literally tear your heart out. And, by the way, the end result will be, You have no idea who you are. You have no heart for anything. And it's a very powerful metaphor based on how wild beasts really operate. And so Hosea is trying to warn Ephraim, this punishment that you're about to receive is going to be horrific. I mean, it's not just you get killed. The manner in which you get killed will just be off the scale for uh, how horrendous it would be. Now, nobody wants to be eaten by a wild beast. Can we be, can we be sure on that? But let me tell you, the scariest thing going to happen to you is have some bear hit you and tear your chest open and then kind of leave you half alive. And you just endure a slow death. In fact, what a bear will do is he'll stop attacking you the moment that you lay still and he thinks you're dead. And then you know what he does? Then he drags you off someplace and he covers up with a bunch of stuff and he'll come back and eat you later. So if you get attacked by a bear, you know, the first thing you do is you got to play dead so you don't move so he'll stop attacking. And then he's going to bury you someplace or cover you over someplace. If you don't get out of there quickly, when he comes back, he's coming back to eat you. Uh, and it's talking about a bear attack uh, that comes upon Ephraim. Um, that's a very tears metaphor that the prophet uses to explain this punishment. Now, let me just very quickly, um, I want to cover chapter 14, the final chapter, 
And this is a very special piece of text. We do repeat this in the annual cycle for the Shabbat Teshuvah when we are emphasizing repentance, when we talk about repentance, because the prophet's going to end on a, on a positive note. This is Hosea. is going to end on a positive note about let's get back to the Lord. Let's get back to the God who brought us out of Egypt. You know, the God that took Jacob and prospered him and established him. Let's get back to that God. Let's get back to the God that brought us out of Egypt and took us to the promised land. You know, the God that cares for us and loves us, makes covenant with us and so forth. And so he's going to kind of conclude the prophecy of Hosea back to the same thing. The idea of doing this Haftorah portion is for us to look again at the Torah portion and realize God's providence in what he was doing with Jacob and how we've benefited from it. How we specifically, and the, and the message is really pointed at Ephraim, to get Ephraim to understand what God was doing when we were all together, you know, was to our benefit as well, uh, even though we may have become separate. Now, there's one other thing I wanted to uh, see if it's, yeah, it's in here. Let me read to you chapter 14. It's only a few verses, and I want to show you part of the metaphor uh, that is used by the prophet here that is a very positive message that brings us to the conclusion of the book. Verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. As Syria will not save us, we will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God, in the work of our hands, for in thee the orphan finds mercy. In other words, return to me, Ephraim, and recognize I'm the only God that you have. You cannot get help from other sources. They're not going to help you. They'll hurt you. Turn back to me. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them, and I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout. His beauty will be like the olive tree. His fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again rise, raise grain. They will blossom like the vine, and, and his renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. Now, the language is speaking of good things that will happen to Ephraim. But let me tell you something here. This is also messianic. This is the work of the Messiah and what the Messiah does, and Ephraim gets the benefit of it. Where did the Messiah first minister? Where was he dispatched in the land of Israel? To the tribal lands of the house of Ephraim. He went into the Galilee. The Capernaum. He went to the northern tribes first. He didn't go to Jerusalem first. And the prophecy said the people that are living in darkness will see the light first. So the promise was, Ephraim, you split away, but let me tell you what God's going to do for you. He's going to heal your apostasy. He will love you freely. His anger will be turned away from you, and I will be like due to Israel he will blossom like the lily. He will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout. You know, one of the pictures that's used of the Messiah is exactly that language. The Messiah raises up amongst us like a sprout from a tree that has been cut off. 
he sprouts up. He's still alive. He keeps going. He, he, he makes a bigger tree. And um, the Messiah is referred to as the lily of the valley. He's referred to all of these wonderful uh, things. And that is exactly what the Messiah has done. Not only did he go to the northern tribes first, and most of his disciples came from the region of Galilee. Did you know that out of the 12 disciples who became apostles, did you know there was only one Judean in the whole group? That was Judas. Everybody else was of the 12 tribes. They were of the other tribes. Only Apostle Paul was a Jew who later became an apostle later on. The Messiah came. All of the men he selected, they were from the northern tribes. They were from the house of Israel. Of the north. So the Messiah came and ministered there and then went down to Jerusalem to complete certain things. And there was a certain, uh, and while he was a Jew, he was born in Bethlehem in the land of Judah, of the tribe of Judah, his ministry was to the northern northern tribes. And just like God had promised to Ephraim, I know you sinned, you broke it away, but the Messiah will come and minister to you first. Which is kind of ironic. You would think he would come and minister to those that have been righteous and faithful. No, he, he wants to deliver. He wants to deliver Ephraim that much. Let me continue to read here for just a little bit further. Um, verse 8, O Ephraim, what more ha- have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am a luxuriant Cyprus. From me comes your fruit. Verse 9, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. This is a very direct verse, and this this thought gets referred to many times, especially when it comes to, do we understand the work of God's redemption through the Messiah? The wise will discern it. Those that are in unbelief, this is a stumbling block to them. You know, the Messiah is not a stumbling block to us. He's a path to righteousness. But to the unbeliever, he's a stumbling block. You remember the chief elders have stumbled over that stone, which has become the chief cornerstone. They stumble over it. We don't stumble. It leads us in the path to righteousness. And so this thought ties back to the Messiah. In fact, This end of the book, Hosea, is incredible messianic inferences. To illustrate that point, I want to show you one more thing that proves my point. And if I take you back uh, to the beginning of our portion, in fact, let me take you back to the chapter that precedes our portion, which is chapter 11. Chapter 11, let me read to you the very first verse. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, we're clearly, interpretational, we're clearly talking about, again, what Hosea said before. Israel was down in Egypt, and I, the Lord, called up Israel up out of Egypt. I called him my firstborn son. We did the Passover thing. It was for the deliverance of the firstborn. And so we put the blood over the doorpost for the firstborn of Israel to be delivered out of Egypt. You know, we, we got the whole story. However, this little verse here, this little short verse, guess who quotes this and for what reason? Matthew. 
quotes this verse as explaining why Yeshua as a child was taken to Egypt and then came up to Egypt to go to Nazareth. In fact, let me take you to Matthew chapter 2. And the verse is in actual verse 15 that makes reference, but let me start at Matthew 2 verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son which is the reference back to Hosea chapter 11. So Hosea, while he is giving the message to warn the house of Ephraim, you must turn back to the Lord. If you don't turn to the Lord, very severe things are going to happen to you, be scattered throughout the nations, and you won't be coming back until we get to the end of the ages. But his message is also the way you will be coming back will be because the Messiah will raise you back up again. The Messiah himself will be credited with removing your shame. He'll be the one that will be credited with reestablishing your identity. In fact, Hosea in the first chapter said, to those that are not called my people, you will be called the sons of the living God. By the way, sons of the living God, that is a very Christian phrase. That is a very messianic phrase. So here we are remnants of the house of Ephraim scattered throughout the nations over multiple generations. You have come to know the Messiah. Guess what your title is? Sons of the living God. Now you've turned back to Moses. Now we're talking about what Hosea talked about. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you to the land of your fathers. I'm going to restore all the promises that I made when it was Jacob. And he went down to get his wives and his children. I'm going to restore like back when, when you were in Egypt and I brought you out of Egypt. In fact, the, the greater exodus is all modeled after coming up out of Egypt again. And it says that the Messiah is the one who's going to be doing this for you. And this is such a powerful theme. And I mean to tell you, very powerfully understood by all of Judaism. And here's how they summarize the whole thing. There is a day coming when B'nai Ephraim, the sons of Ephraim, will return. And the way they will return is by the Messiah. The Messiah will be bringing them back. And we will in that day ask Ephraim. This is a Jew speaking now. In that day, we will ask Ephraim, who is bringing you back? And they will announce to us who the Messiah is. That's how powerful this theme is. And let me tell you, that makes for a very interesting conversation of which I and other brethren have had with some of our Orthodox friends in the land that we have dialogue. And there's some Jews in Jerusalem that I've had this conversation and others I know have had this conversation that goes like this. Now, you see, you see what appears to be the God of Israel taking all these people, all these Gentiles. They're not Jews taking all these people, and they're visiting the land of Israel. They're coming, and they're excited about Israel. And they, 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 they have a, this, this unction from the Holy Spirit. They're being led by the Spirit of God. The, the wonder, do you see that as a fulfillment of prophecy? Yes, we do. 
How do you see that? We see those as B'nai Ephraim. That's a wonderful. I said, well, what are you going to do when they announce to you that the person bringing them back is Yeshua of Nazareth? Because don't you remember the teaching from the prophets, Hosea in particular? He said, they will tell you who the Messiah is because the Messiah is going to be credited with bringing them back. And let me tell you, that's when the conversation kind of gets quiet. They know this teaching of Hosea. This is part of the final redemption teaching. God, through the restoral of the house of Ephraim, is going to be making witness to the house of Judah. Now, the house of Judah wouldn't listen to the Messiah when he came and spoke to him directly. But the belief is, and the way God has described it, he said, but when I raise up your brother, who has been so outcast that they even lost their identity, when you see me raise them back up, which is, by the way, greater than the exodus that came out of Egypt, greater than a resurrection. When I restore that people and I bring the scattered exiles of Israel back, you will see the final redemption. You will see who I am, the Redeemer. You'll see the Redeemer. That's the Redeemer the Jewish people are looking for. That is the one they're looking for. So today, in this modern messianic moment, as we pay attention to this prophecy, and we recount and remember in going through the Torah, how did God start with Jacob? How did God work with us when we were in Egypt? How did he raise us up and establish us? How did he take us when we had nothing and make us where we have something? That's you and me. We have nothing. We're scattered in the nations. We're, we're not part of Israel. But he's going to take the people that have nothing, and you're going to inherit the kingdom. You're, you're going to be the real citizens of the kingdom. And it will be the Messiah who will have done it, who will have brought us back. That's what my brother Judah is looking for. That will tell him who is the Messiah, Messiah King. And that's the reason why they dispute the claims of Yeshua, because he didn't bring the scattered exiles back from the land. That's their argument. Well, in these days, guess what's happening? We now have a people who's turning to, that are called the sons of the living God. They're struggling with their Israelite identity. Not quite sure what tribe they're part of, but they know they're definitely not Jews, but they do believe in the Jewish Messiah. And they're following him, and he's reestablishing and restoring and raising up you know, the people of Israel uh, to bring to bring us back to the land. So uh, it's a wonderful uh, story of redemption, what the Jews refer to as the final redemption. And that's what we should always be remembering. We should remember our past, what God has done for our ancestors in the past, and that that doesn't go even when we walk away from the Lord. Those promises don't go away. They remain intact, and God remains faithful to us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this Shabbat. And thank you, Lord, for your many promises that you've given to our fathers to and their descendants. And, Lord, we want to lay claim to those promises for our lives as well as we turn to you and as we learn your instructions. Help us, Lord, to walk before you, to return to you properly uh, so that we can be the people that you want us to be, to be part of your kingdom. Thank you for our redemption. Thank you for the incredible work of the Messiah, not only 
in providing forgiveness, but in leading us back to the kingdom. We look forward to those days being fulfilled within our lifetime. And we thank you for it in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of the Gospel of John, uh, to chapter 1, hold your finger at verse 43, where our Brett Hadashah portion will begin, and let us go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time once again to study your word and your instruction. And Father, through the testimony of Yeshua, Father, I pray that we are edified and strengthened in our most holy faith. Uh, this week, as we uh, connect the Old and New Testaments together, and as we look forward to whatever it is that you are teaching us and encouraging us in our hearts, Lord, with your word for this Sabbath. We thank you for all of these things. In Yeshua's name, amen. Our Torah portion this week is Vayetzi, which means Andy went out. This is the story back in the book of Genesis when Jacob, after receiving the blessing from his father Isaac, is sent out from his father and his mother's house and flees, basically, his household, and then goes and journeys to find his uncle Laban, who is his mother's brother, to where he might uh, find a wife and build a family there. This is him being sent out, of course, because his life was being threatened by his brother, who was not very happy for um, Jacob receiving the firstborn blessing as opposed to the firstborn Esau. And there's a very interesting thing as we look in, as he's leaving and departing his family's house, of course, that uh, he doesn't appear to have any belongings with him when he leaves. This is some, some have questioned uh, whether this was he had to flee in haste so he wasn't able to be sent away with any sort of money, property, belongings. There's also a story, uh, there's a Jewish legend that a son of Esau actually came and robbed him along the, ra- along the way, along the road. Needless to say, our patriarch, Jacob, in the, the father of all the children of Israel, his name being changed to Israel at a later date, that he is there without anything. And after being receiving the blessing from his father, he then finds himself on a mountain on a place called Bethel, where he lays his head upon a stone, and the Lord reveals to him in a great dream. And this is where we have the story of Jacob's ladder and the dream that he sees, and that God confirms this covenant with him at this time that he sees this dream and this ladder, and it specifically says of this ladder that he sees in the account in Genesis, that he sees the angels, the messengers of the Lord ascending and descending upon this ladder. Now, this connects directly to the one traditional reading for the Brit Hadashah portion. This is the story very early on in the Messiah's ministry when he goes and he is starting to bring in disciples. He begins his ministry. And now he, the Messiah himself, he hadn't done anything up to this point. He simply had been walked. He'd been declared by John the Baptist to, to be the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. He goes to other men and he says, come, follow me, put down everything that you're doing, come and follow me. And this is how the Messiah early on in his ministry accumulates disciples. Well, one of the stories that we have of this taking place comes from the first book of the Gospel of John. And we have a very interesting story here. And obviously, as we read this story and as we come to some of the things that the Messiah is saying, we see immediately where the connection to our Torah portion comes. So right now, John 1, starting at verse 43, this is the story as it goes. The following day, Jesus, Yeshua, wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from uh, Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. 
Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Yeshua saw Nathanael uh, coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Yeshua answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answering and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Yeshua answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And and he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is one of these interesting interactions, of course, where the the Messiah speaking, Yeshua, speaking to one of these young men that are coming along the way, and he says very little words to them, but suddenly they immediately have this heart to believe and to follow after him, calling him rabbi, and they're saying, I'll go wherever you, you go and call me. And Nathaniel, you can see... A little bit of his personality right here from the get-go when he says, you know, he's the one that says this curious line when he says, Yeshua of Nazareth, he's the Messiah, the one that Moses spoke of. And he's like, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is, of course, a fulfillment of prophecy uh, that came before where being a Nazarene was not a compliment to anyone back in the first century. Nazareth was not a great place to be or to be from. It was kind of like a, it was kind of a slum or a neighborhood that you didn't want to be known to, to, to come out of. And that one of the things that's very interesting is that this is actually a fulfillment of prophecy, that he would, that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. Now, in the Old Testament, that prophecy wasn't specific and say that he would come out of Nazareth. No, but the prophecy from our prophet Isaiah does say that he would be despised, that he would, be, that he would not be looked upon with great esteem, and that that is literally what it would have meant in the first century to come out of Nazareth. So this is where, you know, Nathaniel being this one who he spoke this thing about being coming from Nazareth. And truly, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. But immediately, he's kind of like he's kind of questioning, like, are you sure? Like this, this is the one. And then when Yeshua sees him for the very first time, he pays them this incredible compliment. He says, behold, an, an Israelite in whom is no deceit. No deceit, as in he's not, he's not lying, he's not mincing any words here. It's almost as if like the Messiah knew this is what he said. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that he is, uh, he's an honest person. He's not a, he's, he's not a liar. This is, this is a compliment to somebody that it's like, hey, he's just going to speak frankly and speak what is on his mind. But then the thing is like, how do you know me? And he said, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, there's many... Uh, interesting, sim- lots of symbolism when it comes to anything mentioning of a fig tree, that a fig is sometimes considered the fruit of judgment. I've spoken many times before, I believe the fig was the uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so I believe there is something much deeper going on in this interesting connection that it happens that Nathaniel happened to be sitting under a fig tree and that there's obviously something building here. There's a, there's a kingdom connection happening here with the Messiah and these disciples as they as they come in, and then he and Nathaniel after hearing this, seeing this, he believes this. He senses in the spirit of the man Yeshua as he's talking to him, and he says, "You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel." That he, he agrees with him that he's talking to the Messiah. 
He's talking to the one who was prophesied to come, who would, who, who would be a great teacher and who would do all of these things. And it's very interesting, the response that Yeshua says, and, and he, he kind of says this. He's like, I haven't done much yet. The Messiah says, he, he says, I, I saw you under a fig tree, and yet you believe? And he says, you'll see greater things than these. Now, that's, that's sort of the line that you would then think. It's like, all right, yes, this is the Messiah. When he's saying and proclaiming something like, what we'll see greater things in the following of him and believing in him. That, yeah, I mean, this is something that was profound, that something very Messiah-like that he would say. And he says and assures him again, Assuredly, I say to you that you'll see heaven open up and angels of, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Very interesting line here. Now, this is the only time in Scripture, the only two times, I should say, that this concept of angels ascending and descending comes from, and this, of course, connects back to the story of our father Jacob and the ladder and the vision that he saw at the place called Bethel. Many of us believe that he was that, that when he laid his head, he laid his head at the place where the Temple Mount is, where basically the place where Jerusalem would stand, where the Temple would stand, and that that is. Uh, sometimes I've lovingly referred to it as the interdimensional terminal between heaven and earth. That that's where business happens. That's where God comes and puts his place, puts his name. And that that is the place, Bethel, meaning the house of God. And that that is where Jacob laid his head. This is a little bit in contrast to there is another city north of Jerusalem that is called Bethel. And so we believe that that might have been a name that might have been used multiple other times. But I believe that this is a connection back to the, that place and where Jacob saw angels ascending and descending in this spiritual vision. Now, any of these young men who grew up knowing anything from synagogue or these stories or anything, they would have known this story. They would have known this term. Everybody knew, everyone who was of Israel knew that we got the name Israel from Jacob, from our father, the grandson of Abraham, and that he was the one who saw this vision. This is one of the first things that we know happened to Jacob in our scripture, whenever Jacob has now been isolated away from anybody else, he's not with Isaac, his father. He's not with his brother Esau. This is him by himself. And the first thing that happened to him in our narrative of the Bible is this vision and this dream. Everyone would have known this. So this idea that he saw the angels, messengers of God of heaven ascending and descending upon a ladder. This is a story that goes back to the formation and foundation of Israel itself. Notice again that Nathaniel called the Messiah the king of Israel. He says, you are the king of Israel. He is the one who is going to be king over all of Judea, over the Jews, that the Messiah will be a king. But Yeshua, actually, his response is very interesting, and it's a little bit kind of reading between the lines here, that this reference by saying, ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, is that a connection back to Jacob, before Jacob was named Israel. This is the Messiah almost subtly hinting. He's all like, oh, you, oh so you know the story of Israel and, and, and you're talking about me being the king of Israel. But before Israel was, I am. This is almost what I sort of see and I, I read into what the Messiah is actually saying. By referencing Jacob's dream, he is referencing to a time prior to Israel that he existed before the foundations of Israel. We know later on in the gospel stories and the gospel message that the, one of the Messiah's responses, what he once said, was that before Abraham was, I am. 
And this was him speaking as if he was God. He's the son of God that before Abraham even was there, he came, he was there before Moses. He was there before Abraham. And this is sort of his subtle way of saying this. I was there before Jacob, before Israel, because I was the one who speaking of this vision. He also declares and says the son of man. This is one of the most common terms that is used that Yeshua himself uses for the Messiah himself. And he's making himself to be the one that is going to be the bridge by calling himself the Son of Man and talking about and relating, of course, the Son of Man to the ladder that Jacob saw and that the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is a great implication for us to the faith in understanding the role of the Messiah. The Messiah is the bridge between heaven and earth. When he said later on in the Gospel of John that no one goes to the Father except through him. This is the same thing by which no one would traverse heaven and earth except going through him because he relates himself to being that ladder, that bridge that bridges the gap between heaven and earth and that the messengers of God ascend and travel based on the Son of Man. Nobody goes to the Father except through him. This shows in the, the power of the Messiah the role of the Messiah, that he is that bridge and that we would see that and that we would see that. And, and he's saying to, to Nathaniel here, you will see the heavens open up. We might walk this earth, but you will see the, the, the word of God. You will see God revealed when you think about the heavens being opened up. You're, you're thinking about the, the revelation of God and mysteries and the power of God and that he would see these things if he were to go and come and follow him. And that's, of course, what the disciples did see in the course of the life and the testimony of the Messiah. They saw the miracles of God, and they saw him, and, and it, obviously pointing all the way to the ascension after the crucifixion, that you see him rise, go into, go into the clouds, and that this is what the disciples would see, all the way from the very beginning of his ministry. He spoke these things and connected it to the story of Jacob, our patriarch, that, that begins the life of Israel. Because the life of Israel is basically the, the prevalent theme throughout the rest of Scripture. We have the kings of Israel listed, the prophets of Israel, and then all the kingdom of Israel. And it all begins with Jacob. He was the man whose name was changed to Israel, how we got the name of this nation. And this is the beginning of the story. Yeshua is connecting and showing that he is the fulfillment of the story of Israel of Jacob, the first thing that he saw in his vision when God reaffirmed his covenant with Jacob, the same covenant that he also made with Abraham and with Isaac before him. That's the traditional portion that, or uh, passage in our New Testament that connects us to the Torah portion for the Brit Hadashah reading. There's a couple other things coming out of our Torah portion, however, that I absolutely want to connect to the testimony of the Messiah as well. And that is this. Going back to our story in the in the um, Torah portion here, where we uh, we already heard the reading of it and the 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 story of how he came to the well and he comes and he meets uh, meets some servants there and he says, "Hey, do you know Laban? Laban being his uncle, the the brother of his mom." And they were like, "Yes, we know of this man named Laban." And he's talking about, "Is it well with him?" Because this is where he was fleeing to. He's fleeing to the area of Haran or uh, what we believe to be the area of Syria today, and that he goes and he's trying to inquire, and this is the family that he's trying to connect with as he had to flee his family's house. And then we know the story, of course. He sees Rachel. 
He falls in love at first sight. He moves this stone from the mouth of the well and, uh, and then so that the flocks could be watered. And he ends up, he kisses Rachel. He says who he is. She flees, goes back to her uncle. And then we have this great little family reunion or family meetup here where he meets Rachel. He desires to marry her. Hutag speaking to his uncle Laban. And that he desires, and so he's going to work for seven day, seven years for the hand of Rachel. Now, this is the whole thing going back to what I said before. Didn't look like he had any belongings. He didn't have any possessions with him. So he has to go and he's got to earn every bit of anything that he's going to have to his name. He has to earn. And we know the story, of course, of him loving Rachel. But then there's also Rachel's sister, Leah, who is the older, who she loves Jacob. He doesn't love her. And then we have the swindling Uncle Laban who ends up marrying Leah off to him as opposed to Rachel because the wedding happened at night and the bride was likely veiled and there was no lights. And then he all of these things to basically get Jacob to work for Laban. Now, we know the story, of course. He marries both sisters. We know that Leah was unloved. Rachel was loved. And that then we have the story in our Torah portion here at the end of chapter 29 of Genesis going into chapter 30. We have the birth of the children of Jacob. And it starts to become apparent that God has a plan and a purpose for him to be married to Leah. Because she starts having children. She starts having many children. She has four right off the bat. She's got Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And Rachel is barren, unable to bear children. Then we have the, the handmaidens bearing children as well. And so then all totaled, there was 13 children born, 12 sons and one daughter of all of this story. Now, this in the story, we can talk about the conflict between Rachel and Leah, the sisters, competing for the affection of Jacob. Thing I always love pointing out in the narrative and in our story, God always had a plan for Leah to be married to Jacob. You can clearly see that in the birth of the children and who was born, and that Rachel, though being loved, she was in all the story, in all the biblical narrative, there is no instance whatsoever of any of Rachel's actions showing that she loved Jacob. Jacob loved her, and that but and he cared for her, but there was no return of her back to Jacob. But then you have Leah, the one that is unloved. She clearly has a desire to be with Jacob, to love him. And so we start to see this contrast here. I'm, I actually like to relate it to modern day, our relationship with the Lord. I like to look at it this way, that uh, the Messiah, God, he loves all of those, all of uh, the, the people whom he loves. He, he loves all of his creation. He loves all of his people, even if they don't return it back to him. He's constantly trying to draw people out of the nations. And there are those who, are, who love the Lord and have a great relationship with the Lord. And then there are those that walk in sin, walk in idolatry, and don't show their affection or, or any reverence back to the Lord. That doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't love them. It means the Lord still desires for them to return, to, to come back and, and to be in his presence and to love him. And I think that's kind of the, that's a pattern in the relationship between Jacob and Rachel. Though Jacob, Rachel doesn't appear to love him back, he still loved her. Now, but however great things and great miracles happen and great blessings come for those that are faithful to their husband. Great things happen to those believers in God who are faithful to their God. That's where Leah comes in. That's what Leah sort of embodies. 
And great things come through Leah and through the children that are born. The plan of God was for Leah to be born. And you can see that in the birth of her children. Leah bore of Jacob seven children. Seven means the plan of God. And it's this very interesting pattern here that follows the same pattern of the week. She bears six sons. And the seventh child is Dina, who was a twin of Zebulun, the sixth son. So it's like he, she, bears, uh, she bears six sons. And the, and the sixth one is a double portion. And he has a twin. And the only daughter, Dina, is born along with Zebulun. And so we see this beautiful pattern of six plus one in the same way that the pattern of the week occurs. And that there's a great plan of God in the birth of Leah's children. Now, this is where we connect it to the Messiah. We see it in the naming of her sons. All the sons of Leah have a very interesting meaning to them. They each, uh, all of the mothers named the children and usually had a reason or a purpose for the naming of the children. In the case of, say, the first son that was born, Reuben. Leah called him Reuben because she, because the Lord has looked upon her affliction. And Reuben means see, see a son. Ben means son and re'eh or just the, the resh literally means to see. And so it's like, behold, we have a son. That's the very first son. That was the meaning. And then she then bore Simeon or Shimon, which is related to the Hebrew word Shema, which means hear. And so she named him Simeon, Shimon, because the Lord has heard that she is unloved. And so this is how some of the meanings of these names came. So I've already mentioned Reuben, which means see, a son. Simeon, which means heard or hearing. Then she bears Levi, which means attached or joined to. She bore Judah, which means praise. She bore Issachar, whose name literally means wages. Zebulun, which means to dwell, to dwell together with something. And Dina, the female, is actually the, means the, the bride or embodies the, the, the concept of the bride. And so in those seven children, I can tell you a story that relates to the Messiah. The Messiah, the son of God. Reuben was the first name. He was the son. And so I can tell you a little narrative and a story about the Messiah, that the Messiah was the son of God. And that we are to hear his instructions and listen to his instructions. And we are to become attached to him so that we join in with his family. And we shall praise him because he has paid the wages of sin so that we might dwell with him forever so that we might be his bride and he is the bridegroom. In the course of that little narrative and that story, I referenced the meaning of the names of Leah's children. Simeon, Heard, Levi, Attached, Judah, Praise, Issachar, Wages, and all in the, in the story and the naming of Leah's children that we can see here in our Torah portion for this week, we can describe what the Messiah has done for us. The Messiah who has paid the wages of sin, that we shall praise him, listen to his teachings, follow after him so that we will dwell with him forever and that we will be his bride with the, at the wedding of the Lamb at the end of the age. What an amazing narrative and story. It's kind of like a summary of what the Messiah is to us. And you can tell that story through the naming of Leah's children. One other story I want to connect here to uh, our New Testament faith is the story by which Jacob has an agreement with Laban when Jacob agrees to continue to labor in Laban's house. And he actually ends up staying there for um, what is said is 20 years. 20 years that he works, seven years for uh, Rachel's hand. Then he ends up marrying Leah. Then he works another seven years. 
for uh, Rachel's hand, though they were both married at the, at the same time. He didn't have to wait seven years to marry Rachel. But they, um, so then he worked for 14 years just for his, his wives, but then he has to work an additional six years for the flocks for him to accumulate wealth and flocks. And what he does is he proves himself to be a shepherd. Remember, he was a man of, he was a peaceful man, as it was described of him, contrasting him to Esau. And he takes care of Laban's flocks. And he causes Laban's flocks to grow and to flourish. And what he does is he works out a deal with Laban that he wants to accumulate some flocks for himself. So this is what he does, is he uh, accumulates flocks in a way that he says, look, Laban, I will take all of the striped and spotted and the, the ring-straked and the, the, the uh, kind of the not-so-good-looking sheep I'll take those. Let those become my flock. You can keep all of the, the pure colored ones, the white ones, the black ones, the brown ones, the ones that aren't spotted, aren't striped. You can keep those and let me be able to accumulate some of my, my flocks for my own possession. Because he's trying to say, it's like, I don't want to work for his uncle Laban for that long and for the rest of his life. No, eventually he has to accumulate his own wealth. He already has wives and sons. Now he needs to accumulate flocks and the means to take care of his family. Now we see in the story that some of the that what Jacob did is is because Laban had changed his wages several times and and was trying to swindle Jacob out of some of these things. Jacob kind of played that game a little bit too because he knew apparently as being as good a shepherd as that he was that he would breed the flocks that when there was the strong and the 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 um the, the strong sheep the the ones that were prize winning sheep that he had put striped branches before them when they ate and when they uh, procreated, so that then the ones who were born were striped and spotted. And so Jacob actually accumulated a stronger flock because he basically manipulated it to where he would get all of the stronger of the sheep. And the more feeble of the sheep and the, the weaker of the flock, he would they would remain not striped, not spotted, and that those would be the ones that would remain with Laban. So it's fascinating here in this story. Now, why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about the flocks that, that Jacob accumulates uh, here in the course of our story? Well, this connects back to those of us, we find ourselves walking in the faith in the Messianic movement or in the Christian movement. We see all of our brethren that come into the flock, into the fold, that we all stand together as a community and a fellowship and we worship the Lord together. We are not, as believers in the Lord, we are not the most pristine members of society that are come into each of our fellowships and congregations and come to find ourselves to be worshipers of the Lord. We all have sin in our life. We all come from different backgrounds, different walks. We are all striped and spotted in our own special, different kind of way in the sense that we are unique amongst the world, as uh, I should say. You know, that we, I've, I've said before as well that we, when you're a leader of a fellowship or a congregation, you can't control who's going to come through that door. Some people will come in through the door and they will be hurting. They will be in need of prayer and counsel and the word of the Lord and encouragement. And they will bring in all of the baggage and the hurt and the scars and the things that they've experienced in their life. They will bring that into the fellowship. You can't control which portion, portion belongs to God. We all belong to God. And what's unique about this is we're talking about the flock of Jacob. We're talking about the children of Israel, that they are being described as the, the, the flock of, of Jacob being described as maybe not the most perfect looking of all the sheep of all the flocks. 
Now, this is interesting for us, of course. This goes back, um, and, and this can be related also, to who were the children of Israel when they come out of Egypt, out of slavery. It was a mixed multitude. It was a mixed bag of, of multiple races that all came together and all were adopted in into the family of Israel, into the children of Israel, and that there is a uniqueness in the physical appearance of all the people who would be considered the children of Israel and the children of God. We are all Jacob's flock, unique in our own ways, striped, spotted, speckled, and, 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 and we don't, don't all look like maybe what the world thinks we should look. Is it all about looks and physical appearance? Of course it's not. It's about what's inside our hearts and who we are and who we believe in and that we believe in God. Because God, what he has done is he's shown by taking care of and choosing the children of Israel, you know, the children of Israel that broke all the commandments and they were unruly and they killed every prophet. God, he's actually using this example of, look, if the Lord is willing to work with this people and save these people, then there is no person on earth that could ever say it's all like, oh, well, I'm not good enough for the Lord. No, if the Lord is willing to, to, to bring into his family and his flock, no matter the way that you look, whether you are the world's definition of beauty or not, he is willing to be with you, bring you into his family, into his fold, and love you and make you an inheritor of the kingdom. Now, this isn't me just sitting here and bashing the physical looks of everybody in the Messianic movement or in all of our congregations. What it is, is it's a testimony to who we are before the Lord. There's a passage in the New Testament that I want to point out that relates directly to this idea and this concept. Like I said before, we are all striped and spotted. We all have scars from mistakes that we've made in our lives. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God then, he calls us to be a holy people. To love one another, no matter what, what we do or the mistakes that we make. He calls us to do that. Because what he says is that he will make us pure. He will make us clean. We are all unclean because of sins that we have committed. But he will make us pure. So we now, if you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, there's a line and a phrase here that should just pop right out to you that should be encouraging to you in your faith and in your walk. Ephesians chapter 5 Let's start at verse 25. This is talking about people within their families to love one another. We struggle with this all over the place, figuring out how to love one another. Why do we, There's all kinds of reasons we come up with to not love one another, such as because that person smells funny or that person is a sinner here or they do these particular things there. And it's like, and we don't like that. We come up with all of these reasons. But ultimately, the Lord calls us through his scripture and through his word to love one another. And he's doing this and he's speaking directly to husbands of families to strengthen and grow the family together. So he says this, verse 25 of Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, and that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, as he, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. So we are members of his holy body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, 
and that they too shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of us, each one of you in particular, so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is a message that is absolutely necessary in today's culture that we need in the reestablishment of the home and the family and the institution of the family that God has created. In this day and age, we have divorce rate is off the charts and families don't, husbands don't love their wives. People are leaving each other left and right and not staying committed to loving one another as is necessary for a family to grow and to prosper. That's exactly what is necessary. In the same way that the Messiah, the Lord, loves his, the, the congregation, the church, the, the called out assembly, the children of Israel, the commonwealth of Israel, he loves them and that they come in and there's an implication here. As they come in, we're all unclean. We are all spotted. We are all blemished because of our sin and the things that we, that, that, that we commit. But it says here, that he might sanctify her and washing the, the Lord himself washes his congregation with the water of his word. Washing of the water by the word, the word of God that teaches us and instructs us. And when we hear the word of God, we are washed clean. And where it specifically then said there, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing without blemish. That assumes that the church as it came together in the first place, was spotted, was blemished, was striped, was full of sin and, and, and uncleanness. That's, that's why we look the way that we do, because sin has made us unclean. But the word of God washes us clean, even though that we are like Jacob's flock, striped, spotted, speckled, and we are all unclean and we, we don't appear to be, you know, holy unto the Lord by our physical appearance. When we read the Word of God, when we are strengthened by His Word and by His commandments and follow after Him and seek after Him, showing that we love the Lord with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, strength, and pursue Him, then He washes us clean with His Word. And though those physical uh, uh, appearances that we see, that, that we might relate to and, and look like a certain way, spiritually we're washed clean and none of that matters. Because we are made clean and made without spot or blemish. So even though we might be Jacob's flock, we should always remember to not ridicule one another, not to sow discord with one another or insult one another because they look a certain way or act a certain way. Because all who come into the faith are washed clean by his word and appear without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle, and that we are made clean. Though our sins might be as scarlet, he'll make them white as snow. Now, remembering our sins no more. This is the testimony of us as believers, that we have been forgiven for our mistakes. We are all a part of Israel. We need to bring everybody into Israel. God has not replaced Israel with the church. In fact, this is the passage that parallels Israel and Israel's flock being striped and spotted and, and speckled with the church itself. They're one and the same. The called out assembly, the first time that that is ever referenced is of Israel. The church did not come to replace Israel the church is Israel. We are all sons of the living God. We are all in the family of God. And that is Israel, who he has called out of the nations. We should look around, show our love and our compassion toward one another. Stop sowing discord among one another. And may we be washed in, the world, in his word weekly 
as we study the scripture and hear from his word. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your teaching and your instruction this week. We thank you for the Torah portion and the story and testimony of Jacob and all of the things that he experienced in his life. Father, I pray that we would continue to bridge the gap, Lord, showing the connection between the testimony of Yeshua and the stories of old in the, in the Old Testament and in the Torah, Lord, that, Father, you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and that Yeshua, our Savior, Lord, is the fulfillment of Torah and all of the stories and the commandments that are there. Not that they are done away with, Lord, but they are made perfect and mo- as they are most holy, Lord. So, Father, may we be encouraged each and every week when we study your word and your instruction, and may we, may, may we uh, walk uprightly in our most holy faith in everything that we do. May we learn to show the love and compassion that is needed toward our brethren, toward one another, and of course, toward you, our Heavenly Father, the Creator of heaven and earth. We love you, bless you, and thank you on this Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Bye-bye. 